being behind the stove was like more rewarding cooking for people and that capacity was more rewarding than you know designing a menu for a hotel restaurant and helping them consult on you know an american steakhouse like that was it wasn't bad but it wasn't what fulfilled me it wasn't what made me happy what is up you beautiful bastards it's your boy black cod aka rabbi can't lose aka noah kagan in today's episode, I talked to Timothy Hollingsworth, winner of the Netflix series, The Last Table. Sorry for the spoiler ruin. He trained under one of the greatest chefs of all time, Thomas Keller, ran the Michelin star restaurant, The French Laundry, and now runs the popular restaurant, OTM, in Los Angeles. I love showcasing entrepreneurs and business owners from different walks of life to showcase just a bunch of different journeys we can all learn from. If you ever wanted to learn about going from a dishwasher to working on a construction site to running a successful restaurant, you'll love this episode. In this conversation, you'll enjoy three big things. Numero uno, using people's memories as an anchor so your products will stay with them for life. Number two, dealing with rejection and how to overcome it, even if you're turned down a lot, a lot of times. Number three, committing yourself to lifelong learning and paying attention to every single detail, including how the clean the toilets are. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more along the way. Before we jump into the conversation, go check out the cool product of the week, kingsumo.com. It's a product that we built. It's 100% free, and we've used it to grow appsumo.com's email list to over a million people. Go check it out, kingsumo.com. Listener shout out of the week is to Mike Doyle of Your Daily Bread. That's B-R-E-D dot com. He texts me after episode saying, nice. Thanks for your feedback, homie. I appreciate the love. If you want a shout out, leave a review on iTunes. I check every single one. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing well. It's good to be here. Is this what you thought would happen? Just coming back to the beginning of it all? No, I didn't think it was going to be this. I didn't think it was. I didn't understand the magnitude. It was, it was a big project. You know, the partners were huge. And I think that my kind of lack of knowledge helped me power through it and like push mm-hmm. through it. I think, you know, like I'm a person that really enjoys being challenged. And it was a challenging project. And as it got more and more developed, it got became more and more challenging. And I became more and more motivated. Even going back, I think you were in construction? Yeah, I did construction growing up from literally sixth grade to graduating high school. Okay. Were you cooking on the construction site or? No, I did. I was building. Okay. My dad built our house that my parents still live in. Wow. But my dad did uh, a lot of remodeling and I helped him out with that growing up. So he would work during the week and then remodel on the weekends. Yeah. And I would remodel on the weekends with him before I was like old enough to work. And then when I became old enough to work, I would go and we did a lot of projects for a maintenance company, which was we remodeled all the Blockbuster videos in Northern California. Yeah. We cleaned cellular towers and repaired cellular towers. So I climbed up that. We ran telecommunication cables, worked in a lot of banks and stuff like that. Is that what you thought you were going to go into? No, not at all. I didn't want to do that at all, but it was my dad basically made me work. I mean, he, <laughs> he worked a lot and because of that, I had to work a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, well, my dad sold copiers uh-huh. and I met kind of similar year. I remember going with him to the copier, like to sell copiers to people and fax machines. And I was like, I do not want to do this when I grow up, but I, I kind of same as you. He took me <laughs> along and I'd always go in the van and have to do the deliveries. Yep. Did that motivate you not to do that kind of stuff? Or did you say, all right, I got to go find something else? It helped me prepare as far as like worth ethic wise. It helped me prepare for what I wanted to do, yeah. but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I fell into it. I was like, should I go into the Marines? I like to the ASVAB tests and everything. I wanted to go into reconnaissance. Last minute, I pulled out because I was dating a girl and became serious. That was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) I really didn't understand what I wanted to do, but I I got a job as a dishwasher in a restaurant. And it was because working with my dad was driving an hour to work. And while going to school, that was really tough. So this was closer to my house. I got a job as a dishwasher and slowly kind of fell in love with the idea of cooking. Did you just love washing dishes right away? And you're like, oh, I'm going to be in the food industry? I mean, I moved up very fast because of my worth ethic. And it was a very small environment. It was a mom and pop type restaurant. The wife ran the front of the house. She also did all the pastries. And the husband was a chef. And they lived in the backyard. And, you know, the kids were coming in. We'd cook for them after school. It's a very, like, family environment. Very cool environment, actually. And I started as a dishwasher. And dishwashing included prep. You know, I prepped in the day, then washed dishes during service, and then slowly moved over to Garmanger and then Hotline. But there Garmage was only J? salads and whatnot. Oh, okay. So there's only like three or four stations in the entire restaurant, you know. So it wasn't like classic French Brigade with like 20 people in the kitchen or anything yeah. like that. So I had my hands on a lot of stuff and was able to be exposed to it. Was your dad disappointed? I think he was for a while. Working in the kitchen, my dad's like 
He's like a man's man kind of guy. And me, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, raised us and made dinner every single day, made lunches for us to take to school, all that kind of stuff. So I think that, you know, he's like cooking is, you know, your mom cooks. Like, yeah. what do you want to cook for kind of deal? But it took probably, I think, 2008 when I competed in a Boku store. That was when he came and watched me like prepare, like run through the whole experience of the Boku's door practice round. I think he saw like all the technicality behind it and then really started respecting what I did. I think he saw probably the similarities. Cooking is a blue collar job. It's like you don't just go to school to build a house. You know what I mean? It's not like you graduated from construction <laughs> school and now you can build a house. And the same thing with culinary school. So it takes like a lot of technique and craftsmanship. And I think that he saw that and appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you had one hit. You're like, you got into the food and you're like, okay, this is it. Did you, was that it right away for you? Or did you try other things? Because I think a lot of people out there that are listening are like, how do I find what to do with my life? I think that's a, that's a huge question. Yeah, I really fell in love with it. I fell in love with the idea. I fell in love with being able to be able to travel and experience different cultures through food. But at the same time, because of the way that I was raised, I was very committed. And I think that committing and wanting to learn and that was part of the process rather than thinking like, oh, I don't really like this. What should I do next? Or, you know, I think that everybody is, you know, more transient now and yeah. not really focused on, there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, you could have like 10 careers in your life. And for me now that's sort of happening, that sort of development process, you know, I've worked really hard. Now I have the ability to be able to touch different industries and that's really cool. You know, like I was training to be a chef and I just did television. Like that's kind of cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> I saw online that you like your dream was to work at Keller with Keller or there was one other chef. Yeah. Elaine Ducasse. Okay. Yeah. So it was either Thomas Keller or Elaine Ducasse. How did you choose that? And how did you say like, I'm going to go, that's my vision. They were the best. They were literally who I thought was the best in the world at that time. And I had their cookbooks, you know, I studied their food and, and I said, I want to work for these guys. And I was young, ignorant, naive, like whatever, <laughs> and thought I could get a job there. And ultimately called and called and called and called until they allowed me to try out. And then I yeah. tried out and called and called and called. And finally, I received a letter in the mail said I was hired. What was that like, that experience of trying out and getting? Because I think in your in the articles, it's like, yeah, I applied. I got the job at Keller and then I'm on TV. It's, you know, it's, sometimes the journey sounds so much easier than like what actually happened. Yeah. I mean, it was a long process of calling and calling and calling and calling, to be honest with you, months yeah. of doing that. And, you know, ultimately, I found out three years later that I was actually hired by accident. <laughs> Literally a, a glitch in the paperwork where Thomas said that he wanted to hire me. And then Eric Zebold at the time, he's like, no, we're going to hire this other guy. And for whatever reason, through HR, they sent out the offer letters to both people, you know, and we both started and they're like, okay, you know, why are the two guys here? <laughs> and they were going to move me to Bouchon down the street, but either through worth ethic or right time, right place, yeah. made it through it. Dude, that's wild. So your dream was to go work for the best... Was it what you expected when you got there? And I guess one thing I wanted to, I was also curious is like, how, what was your practice like? You said you were training for it. Like, did you just cook at home a lot? Were you cooking at the restaurant? Like, how did you put in the work to be able to qualify? I mean, I just read and read and read and studied and tried to eat as much as I could through different types of cuisines. But it, it was, the preparation for it was, I mean, I wasn't prepared. Like, I worked in a small country French restaurant and I learned how to make pâtés and chicken cocovan and beef bourguignon and like stuff like that. But like, it's a completely different level. The French laundry is like out of control, a different level. And you walking into that environment and every person that works there has worked for some big name chef. And I was the underdog, but I was, had a really good worth ethic. I would show up first in the morning and I would be the last person to leave in my department. I would stay late and help out people. Certain people, you know, would try to get out of work and pawn stuff off on people. I was the person I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, like mm -hmm. I wanted to learn because you know, if I was a commie and I helped the fish butcher butcher fish, now I'm learning the commie job and I'm learning fish butchery a little bit. And so, you know, I wanted to absorb as much knowledge as possible. That's awesome. It's a great attitude. How is it what you expected? I know sometimes in life I want something. And then when I finally get it, I'm like, oh, it's not what I expected. How did it compare to your dream of it? I mean, I thought I was in over my head. You know, I thought I was, this is really challenging. Luckily, I had people that were, you know, the people that ran the stations. Yeah. I mean, I was a prep cook. Luckily, those people kind of believed in me and took me under their wings. Not all of them, but the majority of them, you know, some of them were really hard on me. Others were hard on me, but like also supportive and wanted me to be successful and like took the time to like mentor and guide me. Was your dream from the beginning to open up a restaurant? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as a young chef, you read about other chefs, you're like, okay, Marco Pierre White had a restaurant when he was 28 at that time, which was really young. And uh, he was probably the heaviest hitters that had a restaurant at the youngest age or three Michelin stars at the youngest age or something like that. I forget at the time. But um, I was like, okay, by the time I'm 28 years old, I'm going to have my own restaurant. And um, that was a huge goal of mine. I didn't achieve that goal, but I did achieve running the French Laundry at 29, which I thought was pretty good anyways. <laughs> yeah, not bad running the top restaurant in the world. What do you think made it the top in the world? Because there's like, how many restaurants are in the world, do you think? Like a million? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. It's like an yeah. insane amount. Not to take anything away from that, but it's like, that's a crazy statement, right? Like the best restaurant in the world is like, it's subjective. <laughs> it's food. It was an amazing place to work. It's an amazing place still. It's an institution. Thomas Keller's philosophy on food and how he operates in the industry in general is impeccable. It's really amazing. What was he doing so different? Or what is he still doing so differently than all other restaurants? I think that it was his approach. I mean, food's changed from you know when that restaurant started, when you know it was the best restaurant in the world. I mean, I think about like when I competed in a Boku store, I just got back from that. It was my 10-year anniversary, but I was thinking about the food in that competition in 2009 versus the food in 2019. And it's like not even close. It's completely, completely different. It was way more rustic less hydrocolloids and all the you know chemicals that people are putting into food to make it look so perfect it was before sous vide it was before like all of these other things so you know it, it was good what's a hydrocolloid hydrocolloids it's like xanthan gum or carrageenan or just these extracts that people are pulling out of either plants or different things that achieve something whether it be emulsification or a different texture or whatever if you go and look at the back of a bottle of like ketchup or salad dressing in a grocery store or any of that kind of stuff, all the ingredients that you can't pronounce, those are usually the hydrocolloids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still a little curious though, for Keller, was it, did he have just like the bar was higher? I'm trying to understand like maybe just the elements of like what makes his restaurant different than other restaurants. It was his philosophy that he was operating on. It was, you know, the cuisine that we were doing. It was his ability to connect with people. You know, I think that approachability is something that he really had the idea of like, when you go to a restaurant, right, you create memories, maybe it's an anniversary, maybe it's your birthday, maybe it's a, your first date or, or whatever, you know, that's going to be a memory. That experience is going to be a memory. The food on the plate is, is going to be a memory that you have, the wine that you drink, the cocktails that you drink, all of that kind of stuff. His philosophy was, if that memory can be based on a pre-existing memory, it's further enforced. So if you were to say, Lobster mac and cheese was one of his dishes. And it wasn't really mac and cheese. It was like a coral oil with mascarpone and rich orzo, and then a butter poached lobster and a Parmesan twill. But when you're tasting it, it's extremely reminiscent of a lobster mac and cheese. But you're having like the best version of it that you can possibly have. And I think that that's something that's, that he was able to do that's really amazing. When you think about going to some of the best restaurants in the world today, I do it all the time. You go to a restaurant and you're like, wow, that's a really amazing dish. Three nights later, six months later, a year later, I have no idea what I ate because I don't have a memory that like remembers stuff like that yeah. very specifically. But if I had lobster mac and cheese, I can remember mac and cheese and I can remember that and it helps me associate with that. So I think his ability to be able to connect with people and make those memories, I think that was his real niche and kind of lane in the market. And then other than that, it was his drive for professionalism. So if you think about kitchens being a blue collar job and like, kitchens being dirty and chefs being like a certain type of person. I think that he was very militant in, in that. Like, if you know, I was hired clean shaven with short hair. I was not allowed to grow my hair out or grow a beard in the 13 years that I worked there. You know, he was, <laughs> he was you know, militant in that. You know, you had to wear black so socks, black pants, black shoes, an undershirt, your jacket, your jacket had to be clean, your apron. Like, it was not just how the food was prepared. It was how you worked. And I think that you see that. I mean, you see the people that have worked and been in that kitchen. You see their kitchens and you see like his impact in the industry now. And it's honestly incredible. Interesting. How in a kitchen like that and, and yours now, like how do they ensure consistency? Because that's what I was wondering. You were in a meeting earlier and I'm like, all these people are doing stuff and you have to, it's your name on it. Yeah. But they're going to be doing all the work to the dishes and stuff like that. Like, How do you make sure that everyone's following like the directions that you want or the vision and guidance? I mean, I think it's putting, you know, setting up a structure that has systems in place. I think systems are incredibly important. And then once you have in systems, enforcing those systems and hiring people that understand developing those people and then eventually those people are enforcing you know the other thing but if you think about what industry do you have 100 percent control over what you do i mean yeah we're making food on a daily basis and whatever and somebody might put out a roast chicken for lunch and 
it might need a little salt and it might be a touch salty and it might be just right for that person. But at the end of the day, and the acidity levels and all that kind of stuff, like if we can make it in a certain range and make that range really, really tight, then it's going to be a good dish. Setting up systems and things in place that allow that to happen. What is the system you guys do? Like, what are examples? I mean, I think, you know, establishing recipes is definitely a big operational thing. If you were to say, hey, let's make a pasta sauce. And, you know, at the beginning, you have stock in there and you have to reduce it down. Then you add your acid, then you add some aromatics, and then you add your cream, and then you add your butter. And then you're like, by the time you build that pasta, there's a lot of, you know, too much cream, a little bit too much butter, a little too much acid, too much salt, like, no, not enough of all of those sort of things. And eventually, you know, if you make that sauce ahead of time, if you can, depending on, you know, what it is, if you make that sauce ahead of time, now you have this and it's a stable product, right? Now you have another stable product. And so it's all Mm. that prep in advance that ultimately allows you to spend more time creating the perfect medium rare steak or, you know, the perfectly seared scallops. Interesting. What do you think you learned at French Laundry? I mean, I was there for a long time. I learned, <laughs> I learned a lot, but I think the memory thing is a huge thing for me. I think level of discipline, eye for detail. Being the chef of a chef-driven restaurant like that, Thomas was a chef de cuisine. He was the guy that ran the restaurant, and eventually I became that guy. He was also the owner of the restaurant. So the way that I was taught to run a restaurant is like the owner would run a restaurant. Do you think that he cared about the service? Of course. Do you think he cared about the plateware and the glassware and you know how the rocks look outside? and how the garden was and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Yeah. of course he did. I mean, he owned the building. He owned the real estate. He owned the experience. (laughs) And I think that that's how I look at it now. You know, when I walk up to the restaurant, are there things underground? Like, how's the bathroom look? How's, you know, like all of those things are extremely important to me. And I think that that level of being able to see little details is something that I learned from him. You ever go to a restaurant like the bathroom's dirty or you notice that stuff? Is it that the chef owner is just too busy or they just aren't educated around that or they don't know? I think it's a lack of awareness and paying attention. And for me, the bathroom being clean is very important because that's the last place that you would expect to be clean, right? It's the bathroom. It's like, you know, if there's a paper towel on the floor or something's a little dirty, it's like, it's not like the table's not wiped down or it's not like your silverware is not like, but if you pay attention to those small details, if I teach this entire staff to care about that and care about going in there and washing their hands and wiping down the sink afterwards, and if there's water on the mirror, wiping it down all of that kind of stuff, then what do you think they're paying attention to? Every little detail everywhere. That lesson is applied through, through life, yeah. hopefully. Why did you stay so long there? In a day where you said, it, like in this business, a lot of people change. Yeah, and- I mean, one, it was an amazing place to work. Two, we were able to put dishes on the menu at a, you know, I was 21 years old and putting dishes on the menu in a, in a three Michelin star restaurant. Were they exactly my niches? No, they were my ideas that were helped being developed by the chefs above me. And not every single dish that I ever ran was my dish, obviously, but like I had that ability. And if I went to work for Robichon or Ducasse or all these other people, I go, I learn a chef's food, I cook the chef's food. And I think people do that. And not to say that they care less, but like they don't have the same ownership. And I had a lot of ownership in what I did there because I was allowed the freedom to be able to do different things. I was allowed to express that creative side. And I think that was a huge part of it. We closed in the summertime and in the wintertime, a week and two weeks. And I was able to travel. So I went to, I would go and work in England. I would go and work in Sweden. I would go and work in France. And throughout that time, I would experience, you know, other three Michelin star restaurants or very high end restaurants and work in there and be very thankful to go back home because of how the restaurant was ran, because of the products that we were able to use. Because if the Vita Prep broke and the blender broke, the KitchenAid broke, whatever it was, you go to the storage and get the new one and you put you label it and you you know that gets repaired and it gets back into now that's your backup and you're using the other one it's like you're working in a, in an environment that was really ideal was there any crazy moments for you at french laundry in 13 years yeah i blocked those out <laughs> <laughs> any that stand out or there was tough moments for me but i was i had a pretty good experience there you know i always did fairly well but you know i remember being a 21 year 21 probably yeah 21 years old and we were having trouble turning artichokes and cooking them in berry goal. And, you know, Thomas was like, why are they oxidizing? Chef comes in, why are they oxidizing? Like, I don't understand. Everybody was having trouble doing it. And he asked me a question. He's like, are you following the recipe? Yes, you like it. I was like, no, it's not my favorite, like kind of deal. And, and I remember he just, I, like, I literally was very close to losing my job that day when I told him that. <laughs> you know, I was 21 years old. It was an ignorant statement, to be very honest with you, because the artichoke was not like a finished dish recipe. It was a base. And from that base, you use the liquid for, you can make an artichoke ravioli with it. You can make roasted artichokes with it. You can make just a thousand different dishes from these base recipe. 
but to me, it wasn't my favorite recipe. Ironically, it's still the recipe I use. (laughs) (laughs) So I was very wrong. And I was very, you know, I was 21 years old. I was a young, ignorant kid. Yeah. What was the conversation like that final day when you were like, all right, I'm going to go start my own thing? It was very good. It was a great conversation. It wasn't like it went from A to Z in one day. It was, you know, hey, chef, I'm thinking about leaving. I'm thinking about doing other things. And what are other things? What are other opportunities out there for me? That was a process that he mentored me through and ultimately left on really good terms. And it was, you know, very positive. And he's still a, a huge mentor to me in my life right now. When you're cooking, what are you feeling? What do I feel when I cook? I love cooking. I mean, I think it's to be able to make something that it's, it's satisfying and be able to hand it to you and you eat it and be like, oh my God, it's really good. Like that instant gratification is kind of what feeds us. It's the ability to be able to please people and make people happy and make memories and all that kind of stuff. And I think that cooking process and the fundamentals and all the techniques and the different layers and steps is fun. I think I cook differently than some people out there in the sense that I'm less recipe driven. Now I'm more recipe driven, but fundamentally I'm less recipe driven and I'm more like if there's chicken fat from when you roast a chicken, how do I use that incorporated into my potatoes to add like just building upon those flavors and utilizing all the different things around me. You know, if I'm taking pickles from a jar, how do I use that liquid in that jar? And potentially that's an acid level to, you know, the, a vinaigrette that's made or something like that. And I think those different techniques is something that, that I love doing. Did you cook for your parents? Obviously, I'm sure you've done it once in your life. But <laughs> I guess I was curious, is there a moment when you cook for your parents and they're like, oh shit, he's great. Like, like, like I know you said your dad watched you. I was just yeah. thinking like, as you're doing all this food and as you were getting so much more expertise and so forth. You know, ironically, the further along in cooking that I got, the less I knew about cooking because how you apply that to like a home-cooked meal is very interesting. Like I'm a Comey at the French Laundry. How many turkeys do you think I'm roasting? Not very many, right? We're not cooking turkeys or whatever. So for me to go, go home and cook turkey for Thanksgiving and for it to not turn out like my parents like, or to make something that, you know, we had very traditional. So we had green bean casserole, sweet potato pie, cranberry sauce, homemade rolls, like, you know, turkey, ham, all this kind of stuff. So when I came home and made like roasted Brussels sprouts with bacon and nobody ate it, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) it was kind of a learning process for me cooking for my family. But now I do it all the time. And now, you know, if I go home and it's Thanksgiving, I cook the majority of the meal and I drag my sisters in and have them like, you know, do different projects and stuff like that. But it's rewarding. I mean, for me, that's part of why I love what I do, because some of my strongest memories as a child is eating with my family. And I think that's why we're so close today. So to be able to do that for a living and, and to be able to do that with my wife and my kids is really special and be able to go home and, and cook for my parents or come and have them eat here and be in this environment is honestly priceless. It's really incredible. Can you share a little more, explain more? You said the more that you've learned to cook, the less you know. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're cooking in that environment, it's not like you're learning there's levels in, in cooking. So when you're a call me, you're doing a lot of knife work. Call me is what? Sorry. Like a prep cook. Okay. So like you're doing a lot of knife work. So you're putting away the produce, you're torneying vegetables, you're dicing stuff, you're making mirepoix, you're maybe cooking a few dishes. But I spent right. eight months as a call me at the French Laundry. So that's eight months of pretty much just developing knife skills, organizational skills, cleaning skills, like picking herbs and like small mundane tasks. You know, and then I went to the cheese station. So now I'm learning about cheese and I'm making compotes and I'm making little tartlets and I'm making, I'm not going home and making a plus with a prune tart and a cinnamon gastrique. I'm not making that for my parents. <laughs> and then, you know, I go to Garmage and then I'm cooking with hearts of palm and peeling asparagus and learning how to make asparagus salad and cooking agnolotti and doing, you know, all of these other things. But I, it's not like I, you know, it's not like I am roasting a chicken, you know, it's not with like potatoes and onions and garlic and like, making these home style dishes, you learn to cook three Michelin star food. It's ironic, like, obviously, as you develop, and as you cook, you know, more and more and more. But like, as a young chef, like, you know, I remember even being a line cook and having, you know, going to a barbecue with a bunch of cooks that are cooks in three Michelin star restaurants and the chicken being rare. You know, it's like, (laughs) it may sound silly and stupid, but it's like, we don't grill chicken every day. You know, like, that's not what we do at all. So for us to grill it, it's something completely different. And it's something that has to be learned and developed. Are you not pushing whatsoever, but are you are bringing your kids into the cooking world as well? Or are you thinking that kind of similar how your dad did it? They're very involved in what I do. I mean, I think food is very important. And I think, you know, for them to have a passion for food and a, at least a knowledge. I mean, I can tell you right now that regardless of either of my kids become chefs, which, you know, arguably I probably don't want them to be. 
it's been a great industry for me, but I think there's other industries and I want them to ultimately do whatever they want to do, obviously. But I think that they'll learn to cook. They'll for sure learn to be able to cook. And that'll be how I teach them worth ethic. Why don't you want them to be a chef? It's a tough industry. You know, it's a very hard industry. It's a, you know, it requires a lot out of people. And I think that the time it takes and the commitment that it takes, if they're extremely passionate about it and that's what they want to do, I'll support it for sure. Like, it's not like I don't want them to be that, but, you know, I think that there's, there's other industries where they can, you know, go out and potentially have a better life. You know, I love what I do, but my work consumes me. You know, it bleeds into like this morning at 6 a.m., I'm working. And last night at 1 30 in the morning, I was working. And that's not every day, but that's a lot of the time, you know, and this is work. I didn't even pick up a knife yesterday. You know, it's like it was all meetings and development and like, some of it was writing menus and menu development, and some of it was cocktail tastings for the next round on the cocktail menu and stuff like that. So it was all very restaurant related. But at the same time, it's not like I was sitting there, you know, cooking for everybody either. I was wondering for that, more like how much time do you get to do what you want, which is probably cooking versus now as you open a restaurant and other things doing the business stuff. I love that aspect of it. You know, I, I do miss cooking. And I do think, would it be ideal to have like a small 20 seat restaurant and be able to cook the best food that I can cook? And get the best ingredients and, and manage something really small. Yeah, but I don't think it's financially feasible and it doesn't provide the life that I want to give for my family. So for me, the business side is exciting. It's exciting because it's a different opportunity. So you know, whether it be designing aprons for the restaurant or you know, picking out the plateware and the silverware and the glassware or the lights that we're using or you know, all that kind of stuff is the uniforms. That's fun. It's a creative side that plays a huge part in sort of where I've been and what I've done. But it's also degrees of separation in different directions that ultimately allow me to do what I do. But now what I do is much broader than what it used to be. It's not making the perfect julienne and making the perfect sauce and making the perfect dish. That's a part of it, but that's a small part of it now. What was the experience like opening the restaurant? Because I guess one thing I was just curious in general is like you were in the restaurant, you didn't have to worry about like salaries and employees quitting and, and as much of that. And then what was your experience like getting Odium and you know, moving into running your own things? It's difficult. It was very, very difficult. I mean, I was a chef of a very established restaurant. You know, that restaurant was at that time probably 15 years old. And before Thomas was there, it was a French laundry owned by Don and Sally Smith that was there for 20 years, I think. So that restaurant's like 39 years old, 40 years old. That running a restaurant like that has a lot of pressure because of how the level of which it was operating at. Like it's, you know, you're three Michelin stars winning all these accolades and stuff like that. It's like, where do you go from there? <laughs> you know, <laughs> God forbid you go down, right? <laughs> so that was the tremendous amount of pressure. For here, it was completely different. It was, you know, I'm in a new city and I'm cooking food that is not the French Laundry. It was very important for me to have my own identity. I didn't leave the French Laundry to open the French Laundry. I had to really think about what a restaurant meant to me what I wanted out of a restaurant, what was the purpose of a restaurant, all of those sort of things, and applied that to this location. And then, you know, I think we ran when we opened. It was, it was a busy, busy opening. I mean, we did, for the pre-opening parties, I did two parties of 1,000 people, 750 people, I think it ended up being, across the street, above a parking garage that's now torn down for the Broads opening. I mean, that was September, I think, 19th and 20th. My first daughter was born on September 14th. So, you know, like that was... <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a month. Yeah. And then right behind that, we opened the restaurant and it was fast. I mean, we opened lunch first and then like a week or two later, we opened dinner and we were extremely busy. You know, we were doing, you know, four or 500 covers a night. In terms of opening a restaurant, what was the most challenging part? Was it because I guess I was assuming like getting the financing might be or was it getting location or is it choosing your... What, I was tapped on the shoulder for this project. So this project is essentially the museum's restaurant, but they didn't necessarily want food inside of the museum but they wanted the amenity of food around. And so my partners are the Eli and Edith Broad Foundation are one of my partners. And they, so essentially this restaurant supports the clientele of the museum. So that was the idea. I didn't personally want to be a chef of a museum restaurant. I would rather have a freestanding restaurant. I would have a restaurant that, that is in and of itself versus something that's attached and a part of something when you go to the restaurant museum, you, it's because you went to the museum and you go to the restaurant, right? Like that's, that's why. So, you know, here I wanted not only just the people that went to the museum, but I wanted, you know, I wanted people to come here because of the restaurant. So it really worked out, but it's not like I came and picked the location. They tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to do this? And I think it was, it was right time, right place. It was, you know, it was me leaving the French Laundry, been there for a long time, coming and kind of wanting to do my own thing, 
wanting a family, wanting to establish my own roots and all that kind of stuff. And this gave me that ability because that was Mr. Broad's vision for this area of downtown. He really wanted people to be walking around and like just activated in, on Bunker Hill. And I mean, I lived in that building right behind us there during the construction of this restaurant. And I would walk around in the area and stuff like that. You couldn't get a cup of coffee on, uh, on the weekend. I mean, it's like, it's ghost town. And now you look at it, it's pretty incredible. You're from NorCal too, Placerville? Yeah, Placerville. Okay, from San Jose. What was it like for you when you got to LA and, and became a part of this? Because you came from New York, I think. and Well, French London, New York, and then here. I mean, I, I lived in New York, but just for the opening of Per Se. So I lived there for probably almost a year, eight months, in like 2004. But other than that, I was born in Texas, lived in Texas until like second grade, moved to Northern California, to Placerville area, and then moved to Napa, and then worked there for 12 years, 13 years, and then moved down here. Was it for you here, like instantly you loved LA or why did no. you establish here instead of establishing NorCal or somewhere else? Probably because the girl behind you, <laughs> my wife, <laughs> I met her and uh, she was she was a huge reinforcement factor for me to come to LA because we started dating and I wanted to pursue the relationship. But ultimately, I was deciding between San Francisco, New York and Los Angeles. LA has a, had a tremendous amount of opportunity. I think it, opening a restaurant in New York is tough. Living in New York is tough. I lived in a house in Napa. I had a lot of things. Do I don't want to sell everything and move to an apartment across the country and deal with the cold weather and like the competition in New York. And you can't find like a hole in the wall restaurant in New York to be able to operate and like be really successful. It's tough there. It was possible years ago, but it's tough now. Just real estate's so expensive. Staffing's so expensive, all of those things. San Francisco was a little too close. It was comfortable for me. Moving to the French Laundry was very uncomfortable for me. You know, taking myself out of my own bubble, my own box, my comfort zone, and basically throwing that all aside and being like, okay, here, here I am, and I'm going to commit to this, and I'm going to learn, and I'm going to do it. And that's what kind of moving to LA was too. It was the ability to be able to come to an area, try to make an impact and, and impression in the city, start roots, start a family. LA has been great to me, and they've allowed me to be able to do that, which is awesome. So as you came out of French Laundry, you had this, and then obviously I want to talk a little bit about the Netflix stuff. How are you deciding what to do and what not to do? Because I'm sure there's like, hey, let's open this restaurant. Let's put your name on this. Come do this thing. Interviews and all that stuff. Like, how are you thinking about all that? I mean, it's tough to be honest with you. It's, it's important to like take a step back and make a plan, I think, and realize what the goals are, what the five-year plan is, what the 10-year plan is, and kind of back into that. You know, Because right now, there's a ton of opportunities. There's a ton of people asking and wanting to do different things. And it's like, you want to say yes to stuff. Some stuff is a cool opportunity. Some stuff is like not on brand. Some stuff is like completely outside the box. Some stuff is too close in timing with something else. So figuring out when to say yes and when to say no is tough, but important. I'll tell you right now, I don't always make the right decisions. <laughs> you know, my calendar gets too booked up between too many different things. And it's important to be able to, to save time to be able to make that plan. What's your plan now? I think my plan is growing my family and establishing my roots in LA. As that happens, you know, I'm looking at things that are outside of LA, just to give me the ability to be able to go to different areas and travel and experience different things. I want to open up more restaurants in LA. On the product endorsement side, that's something that I'm also passionate about. I think that it allows me to work with different companies and you know, I work with Traeger Grills and Traeger Grills has been awesome. They're a company that you know I think has a lot of great values. Uh, their product is amazing. And I think that being a part of a company like that and being associated with a company like that, I get an insight to what they do and what their philosophy is and how they run their business and how they do everything in their operation. And I I learned from that. I soak up that knowledge and it allows me to be stronger here, I think, you know? What's the weirdest request you've been getting? Weirdest request? <laughs> For restaurants or endorsements <laughs> or like... You know, there's a lot of different stuff on the product side. I mean, somebody just was like, hey, do you want to post on Instagram? You can have a free teeth cleaning. And I was like, teeth cleaning is like $35, buddy. Like, what you, like? <laughs> like I, I have dental insurance. I'm good. <laughs> There's a lot of little things like that. There's people that have products out there that you want you to see it, they want you to do whatever. And it's like, if I don't believe in the product, I don't want to be a part of it, you know? And, and it's nothing against the product. It's, you know, you handed me, handed me playing cards. To me, that's like, I bought some the other day because I use them. That's like on brand for me. You know, like I appreciate that kind of stuff. So when I'm repping different products or when I get approached to do different things, to me, it has to be on brand. It can't be, if it's clothing, sure. Like, you know, I like clothes. I like, you know, I like Jordans. Normally I wear them every day. So if Jordan wanted to do a chef shoe, that would be amazing. <laughs> I'll hit him up. I'll there text him. Be like, yeah. uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the Netflix thing. Like, yeah. Obviously, that puts you more on the map 
publicity wise. Yeah. What was not on TV for you or what was that experience like for you? I'm sure maybe stuff that maybe you haven't talked about or that isn't boring for you to talk about. They tapped me on the shoulder to do it. I've been approached by other cooking competitions and whatnot. The marketing value, the power behind Netflix was seemed like a good choice. The idea that the Netflix would air in so many different countries, the idea that it was an international chef competition, 24 chefs from around the world, all of those things were enticing. You know, if you think about my career and, you know, being the chef of the French Laundry, competing in the Boku store, which is arguably the largest culinary competition that ever existed. If I go on Iron Chef and I lose, if I go on these top chef and I lose and whatever, what does that look like for the French Laundry? What does that look like for the Boku's door? So those are very important factors for me in making that decision because, you know, because I'm an alumni of these things, I have to represent it and I have to do it in, a, in a, the most positive way. That's a responsibility I feel that I have. And I think that the promise that it was the chef's table version of a competition show and the chef's table, you know, is beautifully shot and tells great stories and, you know, all those sort of things. So, and I think they did a good job in sort of the editing and the promise they, they really followed through. As far as the experience is concerned, it was tough. It's TV. It's, it was weird because like the competition didn't exist, right? So now there's, if there's a season two, everybody can watch season one, <laughs> right? So you don't know, you know, the, the first competition is like, okay, you guys are going to make a taco and you need to have Nick's tamal and you need to have a salsa and you need to have one other component. I forget what it was. And it's like, okay, do they want us to really make a taco? Is it like our version of a taco? Like, you know, all of these kind of things. And that mental challenge was really tough. Certain things like on uh, when we went to the paella challenge in Spain, you know, we didn't make a paella. We made a deconstructed version of a paella that I will stand behind and say it's a great dish. You know, I made that dish before. I know the dish, whatever. You know, we were torn apart a little bit because it wasn't, I don't think they showed as much as they could have with us specifically in, in the commentary, but like being there and experiencing it, like they were like, this is not paella. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? You want me to make paella, scoop it out of the pan and put it on a plate, make it look beautiful? Like... <laughs> Okay, you know, like I don't, I, like I don't understand why I'm here. You know, like like that doesn't really say anything about my culinary ability. I don't think so. The psychology behind all of that, I think, was the tough part. The second round of cooking was easy. Actually, it was you know just giving an ingredient and you're cooking for a chef, and it's like okay, well, peas is the ingredient. Okay, I'll make a beautiful pea dish. Eggs are an ingredient, or cassava is an ingredient. You know, and, and I think those kind of things allowed us to really shine. But I appreciated the format of the show. I like the format of the show. I think, you know, Netflix did a really good job. But I think that in the same respect, it was, it was challenging because we didn't know what the expectations were. If I go on Iron Chef tomorrow, I've seen Iron Chef a lot. Not having that understanding was really tough. Did you guys choose partners? That's something I wasn't clear on. Yes and no. You don't get 100% choose your partner. Like, it's not like everybody chose their partner. For what they were looking for is they were looking for diversity within the partnerships. You know, they didn't want two people from Los Angeles or from America being necessarily partnered unless there was a strong variation or difference. And I think, you know, my partner, Darren from Shokunin, he's very talented in Japanese cuisine, not only Japanese, but that's really his forte. He and I met on, at a food symposium in Ireland called Food on the Edge. We talked and, you know, there was a lot of people there. We talked to a bunch, a bunch of chefs. Both of us spoke at a seminar. We went to different dinners. We toured Ireland and, and were exposed to different products that they had. You know, I knew who he was through there. I never tasted his food. I never cooked with him. I, like none of that existed. But at least it was like, hey, we've met before and we've talked. Like so, that was how we chose each other. So you guys went on speed dating, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, Yo, bro, that's but so you guys never really, you never cooked with him before. You never, even, never like, tasted his food. Or never, anything. not even, not even close. And it, like, I saw his food on Instagram. You know, like it looked good. He can see my resume. You know, obviously, I should be able to cook based on my resume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like so. You know, we're sizing each other up, and you know, for a partnership. And I think that obviously it worked out really well. It's a tough environment to be thrown into with somebody too. You know, it's like you're cooking, developing dishes together. There's, you know, he's a chef, I'm a chef. We have strong opinions on food and on different things, and we had to. That was a huge challenge throughout the show is identifying those problems and making the decisions and. So the partnership added an extra layer of drama. Ultimately, like I think we're great friends because of it. And I think that we have a mutual respect, you know, a huge mutual respect. And, you know, I've made a lifelong friend. Yeah, it's an intense experience to do yeah. that. Is it all shot in one day? What is it like behind the scenes? And is it really you get like the one hour once they give you these ingredients? Yes and no. I mean, it's the first episode. Say we're going to go to England and we're going to make English breakfast, right? Or no, that's not a great example. Say we're going to go to France and make hair all royale. So 
I have a dish in mind. I, I want to make a, a Guinness chocolate sauce. I want to make these turned vegetables, whatever. In the pantry, there's all of that beautiful stuff. But at the same time, in order for us to be able to, us as chefs to be able to do what we do best, we don't necessarily need to be limited to the ingredients. So if, you know, I wanted to wrap mine in puff pastry, doesn't mean that puff pastry was going to be in the pantry. I had to order that. So in order to be able to get what I wanted, we had to kind of design the dish ahead of time. And then they went and they got all the ingredients. They staged it in the refrigerators and whatnot in the pantry. And then we would go in and there would be other ingredients as well. Sometimes we change things during the cook based on the products and looking at them and how the proteins might look or the different greens or herbs or whatever, or being inspired by something that was actually there that we didn't think of. It's not like we made a set dish and we stuck to it 100%, like there was weaving in and out, so to speak. But the second cook, when we had a cook again for England, it was the mystery ingredient was peas. That was like, okay, you know, here's peas and 10 minutes later, you're cooking. <laughs> that was legit. They gave you the pea thing and you have to figure it all out right then. Yeah. I mean, it was a very fast process. So, and then some of the other stuff for filming was a little bit longer based on shooting times and whatever. But essentially, each episode was filmed in three days. First 30 minutes was one day. The second 30 minute cook, the bottom three was the second day, plus the voiceovers from some of the people on the first day. And then the third day was voiceovers for the remainder of the people. What was the most intense for you? I think the feijoada, Brazil. I'm very fortunate to be an American and grow up in a country that is so diverse. And I think the exposure, I mean, Los Angeles in general is just like the amount of ethnic cuisine that we have here is incredible. When you say go make a taco, okay, like that's, you know, that's pretty easy, I hope. <laughs> the guy from Scotland, how many tacos do you think he had? The guy from Japan, how many tacos do you think he had? And I felt that same thing with feijoada. How many times have I had paella? How many times have I had an English breakfast? How many times? Like I've had these things, Harold Royale was trained French. Like, you know, make pasta. Like, I don't want to say that they're easy challenges, but they're, they were not outside my comfort zone. Feijoada was. It's like, I don't, I've never tasted feijoada. If I have feijoada here in LA, it's decomposed. It's like, here's beans. I went to the farmer's market. I went to the Brazilian place in the farmer's market and I said, I want a feijoada. That was my association of feijoada. I mean, it wasn't feijoada. I can tell you that right now. Because feijoada is like a home cooked meal in Brazil. And I learned about that. And still to this day, I probably, <laughs> I probably never had a real, <laughs> real feijoada. But it was a struggle. And then cassava in general as an ingredient. I mean, I've had yuca fries, fried yuca. I don't think that I've ever made it. That's an ingredient that is very, very important to that country. And it was interesting to learn that. But for me, it was an ingredient that I had been exposed to and using. It was an ingredient that I was passionate about. So that was for sure the most challenging episode for us. Was the last one the same where you had time to think about what dish you wanted to do? The final? Yeah. I mean, they gave us a few days. That one was a tougher challenge because we don't know who was going to be in the final two teams in that last cook when we were asked to choose our dish. You know, it was a few challenges before that. So they're sourcing ingredients because of sourcing. They're sourcing ingredients for my dish versus Darren's dish versus Mark's dish versus Shane's dish. It's like, who knows what people want to order and, and eat and like what ingredients. So for them to be able to do the best job sourcing, that was logistically you know, a problem that they had to deal with. And that's how they addressed it. It's an interesting question that I think was interpreted different ways by individuals. But it's like, make your legacy dish. To me, I'm not interpreting that like, Okay, let me let me think about what dish I'm going to make that's going to be my legacy forever. You know, I'm thinking about why dishes are made to be a legacy dish, and I think that my understanding of that, the way that I interpret that, is it's not a sought out thing to be like, okay, I'm going to make this dish, and this is going to be my signature dish. It's kind of defined for them. So I think that when they open a restaurant, what people write about and what people gravitate to, and what you know. Those dishes are the ones that become the key elements, what people are mostly requesting and, and all of that kind of stuff. So for me, the black hot dish that I did was a dish that was one of the first dishes that we created outside of the French Honoré and wanting to really do something different, you know, opening up Odium, doing something different, not wanting it to be the French Honoré, wanting it to be a separate, you know, complete separation of that experience just because I wanted to have my own identity. And I think that was important. That process and creating that dish the reviews that came out. I think Jonathan Gold wrote about that dish specifically saying if he had to eat two of the same dishes in his experience here, he, it would have been a black cod. That's a huge statement coming from somebody like that. Other people came and wrote about that dish as well. I took that dish to England and did a pop-up. And I remember the chef from that restaurant, the other cooks around it, tasting it and the sous chefs being like, wow, that's really good. And like the chef being like, that's a three Michelin star dish. Like, so that kind of validation was something that told me that that was the dish I should make. You know, ultimately, 
having the opportunity to be on a show like that, you, you need to tell a story. What's the story, right? So the story for me was, was Odium and that process of building this restaurant and having my own restaurant and you know, this restaurant supports my family. You know, like, so to be able to talk about OTM and, and stuff like that, I, you know, I wanted to bring the eyes back to this restaurant, you know, to be able to share like, so, you know, hopefully that OTM remains to be busy and, and continues to be successful. And that was part of the thought process. And, and I think that that dish was the dish for many different reasons. How's the attention been for you? It's been interesting. I think it's not like the attention or the noticeability has not been there for a while. Like, I could walk into a restaurant in New York and people will know who I am because I was a chef of the French Laundry or they, maybe they know about OTM or like friend or friend, somebody worked together. People knew me because of that and I was used to being recognized and, and sort of thing like that. But it's, I was just in Paris and I was at a bar and my waitress was like, hey, I know you. Where, where do I know you from? I ate in New York a couple months ago and somebody from across the room, a, a diner was like, you know, waving, saying congratulations. And so, like, it's, it's interesting, you know? Christmas shopping, people were like, hey, can I get a picture with you? <laughs> so it's weird. What I've taken from it is that it's important to constantly be aware of what I'm doing. Not that I'm doing bad things or whatever, but just ultimately that people are, are now paying attention even more so and that I have a responsibility to you know, my livelihood, to my family, to my restaurant, to the people that work for me to be a good example, you know, to be a good mentor. I mean, there's a lot of kids that watch that show. It's incredible the amount of kids that come to this restaurant specifically, you know, and to be able to talk to little kids about their dreams and like them to see you on TV and now to like come and want to eat your food at a restaurant. That's pretty amazing. It's an amazing opportunity. And so now I have to be a good example for them, you know. What is now a, a day in the life? You said you're up at 630, sleeping at 130. I just got back from Paris. I'm a little jet lag, but, <laughs> you know, a day in the life is at least four days a week. I try to be home either cooking breakfast for my kids in the morning or cooking dinner for my kids and my wife at, at night. That balance is something that was, you know, a very conscious balance that I wanted to make sure that I achieved. So, you know, a lot of times I'm waking up before they get up in order to be able to get some work done, whether it be emails or different things I have to address and deal, dealing with. Then I'm either cooking or, or making breakfast for my kids, spending time with them and then coming to work. Or, you know, I'm off to work pretty early and then trying to get home a little bit on the earlier side before they go to bed and maybe make dinner for them and, and do that. But I mean, Every day is completely different. Every day, there's a lot of traveling involved too now, which is tough. You know, it's like on Mondays, we're closed. That's normally a day that, you know, I can guarantee kind of take off. But, you know, this Monday, we have an event in the morning and then I have an event at night. And then I get on a plane and I go to New York and I have an event. Like literally, I take the red eye, land, go and prep the event, do the event. The next day, I have another dinner, fly back. And then it's Valentine's Day and I'll be here for service. So it's like, it's constant work, but at the same time, it allows me to be with my kids, allows me to make breakfast for them or make dinner for them. It, it allows me to travel and go to New York and meet different people. Like, it's a great opportunity. I was thinking, and like, did you have moments where you're like, I, this, at my career? Yeah, like, fuck this chef thing. This is not for me. Like, I'm going to go do something, you know, the Marines or did that happen or when did that happen? I mean, for sure. I mean, I, th I don't think that anybody can be in one industry and not like have their ups and downs and be burnt out a little bit and stuff like that. I think for me, leaving the French laundry, I didn't want to open a restaurant. You know, I was like, maybe I'll do a, like a taco stand. I'll just go in, like, you know, figure out how to do it and, you know, make the best tacos that I can. But it's something that seemed very achievable on a lower level that I need a lot of people involved. I, I wanted to pursue other aspects of the culinary side of things that wasn't specifically standing behind the stove and cooking every single day. You know, so television was part of it. You know, I had meetings with CAA and kind of went through that process. I did consulting. I consulted in Korea at a Chosun Hotel and in Lebanon for a restaurant group. Very interesting, but ultimately wasn't very rewarding. Being behind the stove was like more rewarding. Cooking for people in that capacity was more rewarding than, you know, designing a menu for a hotel restaurant and helping them consult on, you know, an American steakhouse. Like that was, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't what fulfilled me. It wasn't what made me happy until, you know, I was tapped on the shoulder to do this. You know, I was kind of lost a little bit. I didn't leave the French Laundry with a job saying, here's where I'm going. I knew I wanted something. I didn't know what I wanted. I was working in an incredible place with an amazing staff, with an amazing mentor. His life and what he created is amazing and incredible and arguably the most impactful chef of our generation. But that's not what I wanted. You know, I wanted more balance and I wanted you know, a family and I wanted these other things that weren't directly related to that. But it took me taking a step away from that and kind of analyzing my life and reconfiguring and rethinking my journey to be able to move forward. And I think that that process was an important process for me, but it was 
it's not that I didn't want to cook again, but it, you know, it was like, I didn't really know what I wanted. I didn't know what my trajectory would be. Well, it's interesting because for this restaurant, the show, you say tapped on your shoulder. Uh-huh. It seems like you also put in the effort to make that kind of stuff happen. Like, yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize you came down to try to do the TV thing and like explore other avenues of cooking. I kind of assumed you came and you tried to open another restaurant. Yeah. I mean, I think it's right time, right place for a lot of things, right? So throughout my career, I've been very fortunate to be in the right time, right place. But also like, I'm the one that said that I want to work at the French Laundry. I'm the one that called and called and called and called it and like got the job there. Yeah, I was hired by accident. Yeah, I was lucky to be hired and all that kind of stuff. But I put forth the effort to do that. So I think a lot of it is circumstantial, but it's up to the individual to be able to say, I want this or to say yes. It's like the Boku's Door. I mean, to compete in the Boku's Door, Thomas and Danielle in 2008 started this foundation. And Thomas came to a sous chef meeting at, at the French Laundry and was like, okay, who's going to compete in the Boku's, Boku's Door? And everybody kind of looked at me and I was like, uh, okay, I'll do it. You know, like I could have said, no, 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 that's not for me. But I said, yes, you know, I dealt with that huge challenge and that was, you know, that was a tough competition and I dealt with that, but I chose to say yes. So I think that, yeah, it's tapped on the shoulder a lot and it's right time, right place. But if I were to give anybody advice now on like how to be successful and how to get what they want, I mean, I think it's, you have to put yourself in those situations. You have to put yourself out there. You have to there's people that apply here today and they're like, you know, like, oh, they'll send me a message on Instagram. I applied. No one responded to my resume. Well, when I applied to the French Laundry, no one responded to my resume either. Like I called and I called and I called and I called and I made sure I got the job. Like, what are you talking about? People need to define their own destiny. And I think that destiny is by saying yes to things, you know, and, and, and choosing what to say yes and what to say no to. For sure. And also, you're not giving yourself enough credit to also go after it. That's where I want to go. And then pretty much not taking it no until you get what you want. Yeah. If you did go on Iron Chef or Top Chef, who do you want to go against? <laughs> because now they're coming for you, yeah. right? So if, if you get to choose anyone to cook against in your next show. To be very honest with you, I don't watch a lot of culinary television shows. So I couldn't even name all the Iron Chefs. But I could, I'll say this. If I was asked to do it and I was asked to choose, I would try to figure out who is the best chef there. And I would, I would want to go after that guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was saying like you versus Thomas Keller. It'd be kind of interesting. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah. Well, he's not Iron Chef. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that's a wrap. I hope you liked the episode. If you did, go check out Timothy on Instagram. That's at Chef Tim Hollingsworth. Chef Tim Hollingsworth. Or go eat at OTM LA. That's O T I U M L A dot com in Los Angeles. I've gone there. Super tasty. You'll love it. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go make a souffle together. Before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by emailing podcast at okdork.com. I read every single email that you send. Outro plug, product. Also, go remember to check out the cool product, kingsumo.com. It's a free way to do giveaways to grow your business. And the final plug of the episode goes to Jason at podcasttech.com. As always, for making these podcasts sound so nice and clean on your eardrums. And everyone else, Dean and David at the Dork Team. Special show shout out to Chris Speedy Von Wilpert at Sumo.com this week for being the weirdest and most creative content marketer I know. Love you, dog. What's your favorite restaurant? <laughs>